0: The title that I've chosen for this section of 1 Peter is uh, Making Time Count. And I was interesting as as I prepared for this sermon the last couple of weeks and uh, looking at the amount of effort and money and time and studies that are spent at time management. It's becoming a bigger and bigger issue and something that more and more uh, effort and energy is expended into. Time management. And just, uh, yeah, this is not my study, but it is a study that I came across recently from time management experts that tell us that as Americans, on average, we will spend two years of our life, cumulative, of course, two years of our life trying to call people on the phone who don't answer. That's a waste. And that study goes on and says further that we will spend six months of our life cumulative at traffic lights waiting for them to turn green. That's sad. And the same study goes on and says that we'll spend eight months of our lives opening and reading, mind you, reading junk mail. Ah. All told, we will spend five years of our life waiting in line at grocery stores and airports and restaurants and that sort of thing. Time. Time is something that we're aware of. And it's something that we count. Time is important to us. We keep track of it. We have ways of keeping track of it. We have little devices that we wear on our wrists or carry in our pockets. And we have devices on the walls and places that Remind us of time and help us to stay on time. People appreciate when the preacher is on time. And we mark time. I think especially backward we mark time. We look back and we, we mark time and periods of time, increments of time. And we also do that forward. The increments of time that we're familiar with are seconds, and minutes, and hours, and days, and weeks, and months, and years. And that, well, the first row that I said there combined to make a year. And in our Western civilization, we follow a solar calendar, and there are 365 days in a year, and that's the amount of time that it takes for the Sun to make its revolution, or the Earth to make its revolution around the Sun. 365 days. To be more precise, that's 365 days, 5 hours, 49 minutes, and 12 seconds. It's the amount of time that it takes for the Earth to take a trip around the Sun. Or if you prefer, there's 8,766 hours. Or even more specifically, 525,949 minutes. And I didn't do the math on the seconds. That's a year. On average, we're estimated as Americans, U.S. people that live in the U.S., we average right now about 79 of those trips around the sun. That's the average span of an American. And I bring that up because it seems that throughout the book of First Peter, and maybe especially in this passage in my, uh, as I studied and evaluated, Peter is thinking about time. And I'm not exactly sure why all that is. In First Peter chapter 1, we mention, notice that he's writing to people that were scattered. They were um, forced or not living in the area that they were growing up in. It was uh, unfamiliar times for them. There was persecution. There was stress and suffering in that. We'll talk about that in our uh, next lesson. In First Peter chapter 4, he takes a deep dive into suffering that they were dealing with. And so those kinds of things cause us and force us to think and monitor time, perhaps more more frequently than when things are going well. But Peter mentions time throughout the the, the book, and uh, here in chapter four, I think it's mentioned several times, several inferences of time, and that's true for the rest of First and Second Peter. I would say probably a minimum of six or eight times throughout the book, depending how you count, Peter refers to time. And I feel like in this passage, in this section, he especially um, does so. Now, when you're young, you think that you've got oodles of time, right? We think there's all kinds of time left in our lives. But we get a few years under our belt, maybe a few decades, and we realize that time moves really quickly. It does not take long. By the time you enter your first child into first grade, and by the time your last child graduates high school, time flies. Time moves really, really quickly. And the older I get, the more I realize that. And it is thought by most most Bible commentators when Peter, as Peter is writing this book, not only is he thinking about the persecution and the suffering that the readers are writing, but he's thinking about the time that he has left. And I think most Bible scholars would agree that Peter was killed, crucified, martyred shortly after this uh, writing here, like Moses who wrote Psalm 90. It says, teach us to number our days, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. You know, it's not nearly as important for us to count the days as to make the days count. It's not as important for us to count the days as it is to make our days count. Making time count. And it is absolutely true that the time we have is the only time we get. When we're in eternity, time will be no more, and we decide, God has made it, arranged it so that we decide how we use our time, and we get to choose what we invest our time in and for whom. And this passage here especially addresses some of those things. I encourage us, one of the goals that I have for this sermon is to remind me and all of us that we should not be spending all of our time for ourselves don't spend it for yourself god has given you your life and your time for you to spend it in ways that are a blessing and in ways that are a help and a benefit for not only for yourself but for others primarily for others as we invest time in others we receive a blessing <clears throat> In our vernacular, we have a common phrase where we talk about killing time. Uh, where we just hang out and nothing much happens and we're just, yeah, killing time. I came across this, a quote this week that said that you can't kill time without injuring eternity. I don't know about that for sure, but it did strike something with me. You can't kill time without injuring eternity. Time matters. Time is important. Time, the way we use our time in our lives, matters not only for here and now, but for eternity as well. Another key thought throughout the book of 1 Peter, and we've already drawn attention to it a little bit uh, in some of the previous sermons, but in this particular chapter, twice Peter mentions the will of God. A recurring theme throughout the book of First and Second Peter, the will of God. And twice in this passage, the will of God is mentioned. And I think it's really important The will of God is for us to use our time wisely. The will of God is for us to live our lives in such a way as he describes here in such practical terms here in the first um, 11 verses. Things that we do to the positive. Things that we don't do to the negative. The will of God is for us to use whatever time we have left for his service. Whatever time we have left, use it to the will of God. I want to suggest six ways to make time count. Six ways from this passage here in 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. Six ways to make time count. Number one, look at what Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, for as much then, or you could use the word therefore, since Christ hath suffered or likewise suffered. And remember in the last time we were here in this uh, passage uh, in chapter 3, it talks extensively about Christ's suffering throughout chapter 3. And it calls us as the reader, whoever is reading the book of 1 Peter, to follow Christ's example. And not only into suffering, but while suffering adopt the mind of Christ while going through difficult times suffer like Christ he reminds me of Paul's writing in Philippians 2 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus and he goes on to talk about that same that same sequence and that same subject of suffering like Christ Peter says that since Christ hath suffered in the flesh we should arm ourselves arm ourselves with the same mind. That little phrase, arm yourself. This past week, a couple of miles east of us, we had a whole neighborhood, a whole township that was concerned about a convict who was on the lam. And many homeowners armed themselves. They were prepared. They were ready. They were, it's a mili- military type term of Being prepared, get ready, do what is necessary, prepare yourself. Picture, if you will, a soldier putting on gear, getting ready to go to battle. That's the idea of this phrase, arm yourself. However, our preparation is to take place not outwardly as Christians, but inwardly. Arm yourself with the same mind, he says. Not arm yourself with a revolver or arm yourself with protective gear. Arm yourself with the same mind, he says. Get prepared for what's ahead. That's the idea. Gird up the loins of your mind, he said in chapter 1, verse 13. He's also talking about preparation. Chapter 1, verse 13 um, talks about Again, reference to time. As we think about the end that is approaching, we should gird up our minds. And he does that same thing. We'll talk about that just a little bit later in verse 7. As the end of time is approaching, we should be prepared. Arm ourselves with the mind, a mind like Christ. A militant attitude towards sin, he says. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, has resisted. And that's, that's the, the goal, that's the requirement, that's a way to make time count, is to fight sin. <clears throat> Many of us, in our testimony, we can easily think of times where we did not battle sin, where we did not confront sin, where we did not arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and, and take, a, take an aggressive stand against sin. And those, those times of sin have a way of taking years off of our life physically. They have ways of taking meaning out of our life emotionally and uh, spiritually sometimes. Peter's response is that since Christ has suffered for us, since a way to escape has been established by Christ, we need to arm ourselves with that mind. We need to rest in that victory. That Jesus has won. And I am so impressed again as I looked at this this, this point here and thinking about how Jesus confronted sin in his life, during his life. He never participated in sin. He never became, he never sinned. He never uh, made excuses for people who were sinning throughout. The book of the Gospels, we see numerous occasions where Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what that means is that he was going to give his life as a remedy, as a sacrifice, the sacrifice for the sin problem that the world was dealing with. And so, um, yeah, it gives us a little bit of a picture of how Jesus confronted sin and took a stand against it. But what is our ultimate goal? What is our ultimate aim when confronting sin? It's to stop doing it, right? To cease from it. Look what he says, for who has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, he says in verse 1. Well, it's not going to happen here in this world. It's not going to happen in this earth. We are confronted by sin and the effects of sin through the rest of our time. We'll deal with it All the way up until the end of our lives, one of the things that has often amazed me in visiting and talking to to old folks, perhaps people that were practically or were on their deathbed, was the temptations, the doubts, the fears, all of the things that they were dealing with right up until the very end. It's a battle that we're going to need to fight our whole lives. And the Bible makes it just as clear that we are asked and invited to win this battle. And we can win with the help of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 to 16. In Genesis, God spoke to Cain and in in, after he had, I guess, murdered someone, or um, yeah, murdered Abel, and had yeah, taken things into his own hands there, God came to Cain and actually gave Cain a... It's pretty amazing to see God's grace as he talks to Cain there in chapter 4. One of the things that God said to Cain, he said, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. He gives Cain an opportunity to overcome murder, to overcome the hatred, to overcome the sin that he's been involved in. James, in the New Testament, just a... Different book, same kind of uh, teaching. James says that we should resist the devil. Fight the devil. Jesus said to the twelve apostles, he says, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And then he taught us to pray. In the Lord's Prayer we pray, deliver us from evil. Or from the evil one. Some translations uh, did give that. All of that is resistance talk. It's military language. We need to fight. We need to resist. We need to take a stand against sin. We need to push it away. It's a battle that we need to win. And I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but suffering, like the people that 1 Peter Peter is writing to, suffering has a way of helping us with this. It draws attention to things that are most important, where we tend to look more inwardly instead of outwardly. We tend to look more closely and more fervently at Jesus rather than ourselves. Suffering has a way of doing that. And I don't think it's by uh, accident that Peter transitions after verse 11, which is where we'll quit today. Peter transitions into suffering. And talks about suffering as a way of um, accomplishing God's will in our lives. So the first thing is, resist sin. The second thing we see is in verse 2, and I called it where we relish God's will. We relish the will of God. We seek to do the will of God. If the first one is negative... The second one is much more positive. Resist sin. Enjoy God's will. So he gets right to the heart of the matter in verse 2 in terms of what you and I need to do with the rest of our time here on earth. How will you spend the rest of your time? Well, the best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest whatever time you have doing the will of God. Let me just read that again. The best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest your time in doing the will of God. God's will and the purpose of God needs to be our lifelong desire. It needs to be a passion that we seek, that we we do with all of our hearts. Following God's will, enjoying the will that God has, allowing Him to work in our lives. Let's make sure that God's will is number one in our pursuit. Of things here on earth. To quote what Jesus said himself, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Did you know that the will of God, I think, is the most important and most exciting thing about our lives? You might be good at a lot of things. We might be skilled at numerous hobbies or things that we do with our hands or with our Uh, With our minds or our our words or whatever, we might be skilled at those kinds of things. But somebody has said that there's two most important days in our lives. The two most important days in our lives, someone has said, is the day that a person is born. And secondly, the day that a person realizes what he's born for. And I think it it is well said. Let's do what we're born for. Let's find that purpose and claim that promise. Claim the purpose that God has for us. And I think it's something that we all deal with. So resist sin, relish God's will, but here's a third. Renounce your past. So now he goes into, uh, in verse 3, where he talks about the time past of our lives. And I think there's many Christians, many of us, that get, really bogged down sometimes with things that have happened in our past, and for good reason. They're shameful things. They're things that we should not have done. They're sinful things that we have done. And for whatever reason, they um, have taught us something. They teach us a level of fear or a level of anxiety that we think of when we think of the past. Peter says that we should renounce our past. Or in other words, we come to a point in our lives and maybe today is that point where you say, enough is enough. I'm done with that. And that, uh, that's what I think the message of this text is. For the time past of our life may suffice us. That word suffice means enough. It's enough. We're done with the old life. We're done with the shame. We're done with the second guessing. We're done with the past. We're looking to the future. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. So in the past, we did the will of the Gentiles. Or another way of saying we did our own will. We did our things. Ourself was number one. We did whatever pleased me. And we, that was king in our lives. Self was on the throne. We did whatever came naturally to us. But there's a time in our lives where we say that's the old lifestyle. That's the old me Self is no longer on the throne. Jesus is now on the throne. And I answer to him. I've got something new going on. And I like how he begins the word for. For you have spent enough time, it says in the NIV. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. There was the time in our past that are now under the blood. They have been covered by the blood. And he gives a list of sins here in First Peter. Sins that are sins of the flesh. Selfish sins. Things that we do when self is on the throne. And there are words, some of these words, that are not that modern or current to us. In the NIV it says, verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And even the words that are used in the King James Version, I didn't have a particularly hard time identifying or finding the definition or the meaning of those words. They're sinful things. They're bad stuff. And maybe some of you here can relate to that, to those sins. Maybe one or two of them. Maybe all of them and perhaps still others can't relate to hardly one of them. We grew up in a Christian family, we grew up in a Christian home, and we were spared. That's a good thing, but listen to me, inwardly, we probably all have done these things. We've probably all have done them inwardly, and you see, there's sin that's still going on. Sin is still going on, whether we've done them inwardly or outwardly. Left unchecked, when it's done inwardly it can have the same effect. And basically no matter how much time you spend for the flesh, no matter how much time you spend for the devil, no matter no matter how much time you spend serving yourself. Whether it's 20 years or 20 minutes, it's too much. It's too much. I like how he continues on in verse 4 where he talks about the world thinking strange things. They think it's strange when people no longer do these things. And you read the news throughout, and in modern, current times, this week, you read the news. People think it, they don't think it's strange when people wreck their bodies with drugs. They don't think it's strange when homes are wrecked with adultery. They don't think it's strange when people can't work or can't function of their job because of hangovers or because of uh, drugs. But they do think it's strange when a drunk becomes sober. When the impure person becomes pure, they notice they think it's strange. They think it's strange when you buy a Bible and go to church and hang out with Christians when you didn't used to do that. That's strange to the world. Paul the Apostle, when he was sharing his testimony before a Roman governor named Festus. He talked and gave his testimony, and he talked about how God had changed his life. And Festus looks at him and says, Paul, you're mad. You've gone crazy. He thought it was strange. If Paul, Paul would have said to Festus, look, I got stone drunk last night. I wonder if Festus would have said that. I doubt it. He may have said, good on you. You're a prisoner. You're in prison. That's, that's what prisoners do. But when Paul said, I'm a changed man. I used to do those things and I don't anymore. Festus said that he had gone crazy. Well, Peter says it like it really is in verse 5. And he says that they think it's strange, but God is the judge. We give account to God. And I think it's just a neat way of saying, let's, let, let's just let it right there. Let's just let God be the judge. We've put our faith and trust in God. We've given our past to him. Let's just leave it right there. Let's just leave it in the hand of God. God is able to judge the quick and the dead. He is ready, it says in the King James Version. He is ready to judge the quick and the dead. He is well capable, well qualified to judge. Let's just leave it right there. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, there is yet another reference to time, at least the third or fourth time in this passage already. Verse 7, it talks about the end of all things is at hand. The end, the end of time. The last days is a term that we have used. It's a term that Jesus used. It's a time that, It's a term that the Bible uses to describe, I think, the time we're living in. And I'm not so much saying that, well, I think the last times is the period of time that follows Jesus' first coming. It's the period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It's, it, when we talk about the last days, we're not necessarily talking about days in sequence as much as we're saying it's the last era. It's the last period of time. There's not another section of time following. It's the last period of time. Whatever length of time that is, it's the last days. And we've been now it's 2,000 years or so. And I think that should be a reminder to us, like Peter was thinking nearly 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is at hand. It's, it's close. It's coming. And he talks about that more in Second Peter. And we'll get to that when we get to that, that spot. The end of all things is at hand. Peter has a um, teaching on that. And I think it's something that we should pay attention to as well. <clears throat> there is not another testament to follow. This is the last days. We are living in that last days according to the New Testament. There's no guarantee of tomorrow, verse 7. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The fact that tomorrow is not guaranteed... It should cause us to think about our days. It should cause us to make our time count. Whether you have one tomorrow left, or whether there are thousands of tomorrow left for you. How should you live? And he gives us three things, three more things in, in, uh, in the passage here about how we can make time count. And verse 7, he says we should watch under prayer. Be therefore sober. That means alert. That means under the control of the Holy Spirit. In, in chapter uh, Colossians chapter 3 or 4 there, and also Philippians in the, in the corresponding passage, it talks about soberness. Being under the control of the Holy Spirit as being under the control of some other kind of um, substance. Here he says that we should be sober, and watch on the prayer. Now, think about Peter, and I think this has been something that has been burned into his mind. You remember where he heard these words before? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Peter and the disciples and Jesus were in the upper room, and they celebrated the Passover. And Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went a short distance, and it indicates that Peter, James, and John were with him. And Jesus said almost this exact thing. He said, watch and pray. And you know what they did? They fell asleep. They're sawing logs. And Jesus comes back to them, and he says, what? You couldn't watch and pray? And that happened three times. And I, I barely can imagine how strong this, these words must have been in Peter's mind. And he draws attention to that same thing here Be sober and watch unto prayer. One of the things that we can do to make time count is to be prayerful. Prayerful. The end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch. Unto prayer. Or be watchful in your prayers would be another way of saying it. It seems as if Peter is saying here, as your tomorrows become fewer, you should pray more fervently. You should pray harder. As time takes its toll, as time passes, and as time flees in our experience, as we get older, whether that's one day older or a decade older, We should be reminded that the end is coming and it causes us to be serious and prayerful. So pray harder. The fifth thing here that we see in the text is love deeper. In verse 8, love deeper. And above all things, he says in verse 8, above all things. So this is a very strong premium here. Fervent charity. Have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity, he says, shall cover the multitude of sins. And he's quoting Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Actually, it's a quote from Proverbs, but there's another verse in Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6, where it says, open rebuke is better than secret love. And he says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So he's, um, yeah, talking about covering a multitude of sins. And I don't know that I have an understanding for this. I thought about this this morning as we were um, studying the Sunday school lesson. Um, John the Baptist um, called out Herod and Herodias for their sin. It seems like he could have added years on his life if he would have shut up. Um, I guess you could say perhaps... If you're inclined to, you could say that John was not very loving. I think, it, I think more, more realistically, as I study this passage, I think it is more important. I don't think that we as humans can adequately cover sin anyway. We can cover up sin, but we cannot cover sin very well. Jesus covers sins. The blood of Jesus covers sins. We tend to cover up sin. And I'd like to just draw a little bit of a distance there. Here it says that we should have fervent charity among ourselves. And I think that word fervent in the Greek literally means straining or strenuous. The word picture in Greek is that of a horse at full gallop. Or a runner, straining, running for that, that take that last step across the finish line. That last dive, that last stride. That's the, that's the word picture, strenuous. Hard work is implied. Every effort, every amount of energy is designed to bring covering to, to sin and to, 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 um, to love in that way. <clears throat> I'm not sure what more should be said about that. I think the kind of love that is described here, is never eager to expose weakness or to cause humiliation. I think that fervent love that's described here cringes to expose sin in a person's life. This kind of love, I think, handles or seeks to handle things privately, discreetly, before it goes public. But there is a time, according to Scripture, where sin needs to be exposed. Things need to be confronted. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, gave a formula. He said you start privately, and then you bring someone else in. And then, when it's not followed, you take it to the church. There's a time to go public. And if, if it's not resolved in that way, there, yeah, there are proper channels to, to, that need to be followed. I think to cover up sin is to pretend that it doesn't exist. Look the other way, to ignore it. And I think concealing sin is actually not a way of showing mercy. In our time, I think we are tempted sometimes to conceal sin in our own lives or in the life of others. And it does not usually help offenders. Cover-ups occur when there's something significant that's felt to be at stake, whether it's status or money or something like that, power. When the truth is revealed, we tend to shy away from that. Cover-ups are something different than the covering, I think, that's described here. When we look at how God provided a way for sin to be covered, in the Old Testament, for example, there are numerous passages and stories and ways of God covering sin or providing adequate means for that sin for that time. God took sin seriously. In the Garden of Eden, He didn't ignore Adam and Eve's sin. He did not brush it over, but he provided a way for them to deal with that sin. It didn't remove the consequences for Adam and Eve, but he provided a way for them. God's grace was super evident there in the Garden of Eden when he talked to especially Adam and Eve. He didn't provide grace for the snake there in chapter 3, but he provided grace for Adam and Eve. He did not ignore sin, But he provided a way for sin to be covered in that way. And there, the covering of the animal became an illustration of the covering that God provided for for sin at that time. Jesus, and throughout the Old Testament, uh, I could go further. The the rituals in in the tabernacle, in the temple, later in the temple, were ways of illustrating and showing the covering of sin. Not the covering up of sin, but the covering of sin. Jesus, while He was here on earth, um, I've already talked about this somewhat, God sent Jesus, His only begotten Son, the Bible says, so that He could be killed as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That is radical and tremendous, as amazing as it is, it is, and it gives us a picture of the incredible penalty for sin. Jesus, when he prayed in the garden for the cup to pass from him, he was taking that offering seriously. He was taking the effects of sin seriously. He didn't brush it off as nothing, he didn't ignore it. But he set his face, like I mentioned earlier, steadfastly for his hour, the Bible calls it. So pray harder. Love deeper, and here is a sixth. Serve smarter. In verses 9 to 11 now, we have a, uh, some, again, just tremendously practical teaching on how to serve one another. And it's one of the ways to make time count. It is one of the ways that we can go about our lives to bring meaning and purpose into our lives. Making time count. And he mentions hospitality as the first thing. And I'm sure you've probably noticed the root word to hospitality. It's the word hospital. Hospital. Where you have a systematic method or a, a, a place that's designed to bring healing to situations. You go to the hospital when you are needing something. When you are uh, suffering from something. And that that's, gives us, I think, a little bit of an illustration of what hospitality is we give our time that's sometimes the hardest one we give our money we give our efforts we give our energy to bring healing to people to make life easier for people to a person comes into our life that has a need and we come alongside that person hospitality i think historically has been has to do with food and fellowship and that's a great way to show hospitality. Now, there are other ways as well. But I think we should also not ignore the food and fellowship. I think it's a, it's a way of bringing people into our, our lives and showing commonality. And I've appreciated being the recipient of a lot of hospitality, of that kind of hospitality in my life. It makes a difference. It's motivating, it's encouraging, it's inspiring. And I think it's possible that that was the original context. He goes on to say that we should show this hospitality without grudging or grumbling. The Greek Greek word here means muttering under your breath. Where we're doing, on one hand, we're showing hospitality, but we're grumbling the whole time we're doing it. And he says that we shouldn't do it that way. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. In verses 10 and 11 here, he goes beyond the practical serving and he gives the motivation behind the serving. And I like that. I think it's so important for us. Um, We have probably studied, I remember a number of years ago, I, I think I preached at least two, maybe three sermons here on the spiritual gifts. And these verses are, in my opinion, talking about spiritual gifts. And those are the motivation for why we do what we do. And it it guides how we go about doing um, what we do. And Peter here divides the gifts into serving gifts. He talks about ministering. That's serving gifts and speaking gifts. And I think it's not unusual for those two gifts to collide. Sometimes the servers tend to be um, yeah, to feel something toward the, the speakers and the speakers sometimes to the servers. And I, I think that Peter kind of catches both of those and he says, doesn't matter which side you're in, do it for the Lord, do it as unto God. And that is such an incredible uh, teaching that, that we need to have. I have uh, f- five things here that I notice in, this, in verses 10 and 11, five facts about spiritual gifts, and I'm just going to give them kind of quickly here. So first of all, this passage tells us that every Christian has a gift. If you're a believer, you have been given a gift. You have been gifted by God. The Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, has given you a gift as He, the Holy Spirit, wills, as He designed it. He has given you that gift because there's a plan, there's a purpose. That's why you have the gift you have. So you, every Christian has a gift. And your gift may be different than someone else's. I called attention to the contrast that Peter seems to bring up here. the minister, The servers, the speakers, the teaching gift, the ministering gift. Your gift is different than the person next to you or somebody else has a different gift than the gift that you have. Thirdly, it's important that whatever our gift is, that we use it to help others. I think it's one of the main and it's one of the number one things that we need to remember about spiritual gifts. It is easy for us to think of it as our gift. It's my gift. God has given it to me, and so I use it in that way. Well, there's maybe parts of truth to that, but the spiritual gifts as they're given in Scripture are for others to benefit. It's not given for your benefit. It's given for the benefit of others or the benefit of the whole. And the spiritual gifts are never, never to be used in ways that lift me, lift myself up. And that's the selfish tendency that we need to confront. Some gifts are noticeable, according to this passage. Other gifts tend to be less noticeable or less noticed. There are behind the scenes and there are gifts and there are other gifts that are more up front. And they should not be in contrast and conflict with each other. They should not be in competition with each other. They should not be at odds with each other. The gifts are given for the good of the whole. And fifthly, I just really appreciate verse 11, how he sums up this passage. And he especially emphasizes that we do what God has given us so that God can be glorified. And then he ends with just a a word of doxology. He says, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And as I studied here, I just found myself praying that, that the gifts that we have here at Weavertown Church would be for the praise and dominion of Him. Let it be so. It appears as if Peter is on that same path. Let it be so. Amen. May those gifts be used to bring glory and honor to Him. Some are more noticeable. Some are more, tend not to be noticed as much, but all of them are helpful. And all of them, used properly, glorify God. And I, I think it's just important for us to, to notice all of that. There's one more thing that I'd like to point out in our text here, and I'm going to do this as we close. In verse 10. In the the end of verse 10, he talks about using our gifts for the purpose of being stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, we talked about this word manifold back in chapter 1, verse 6, when we um, covered that section. It's a while ago, I know, and some of you may not remember it. But it's an old word to describe variety. So, In um, an engine, for example, there are manifolds or plumbing. Plumbers assemble manifolds to direct water out multiple ways. A, A manifold in an engine is to allow exhaust or air intake, one or the other, to either go out or go in in multiple ways. That's what the word manifold means. It means variegated. Even more specifically it means multicolored. Think of the Pantone chart of colors. The Pantone chart of colors, I think, has like 1,900-some colors. And here he says that when the gifts are used and they're stewarded, it brings a beauty. It brings a multicolored beauty to the group. I think that's what it means. A multicolored the manifold grace of God. It's like this. It's like shining a light through the gifts. So if, 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 if my gift might be blue, yours might be red, someone else's might be yet another color, but when the light shines through, it produces all of the colors. I think that's really what God is wanting to demonstrate with the gifts. And he describes it as he describes that the variety as being the grace of God. And I just find myself really in need of understanding more of that. The variety is the grace of God, it is the grace of God that we are not all the same gift, it is the grace of God that we have multi faceted visions, it is the grace of God. That causes another person to see something in a way that I don't. Or to respond in a way that I don't. Here's the grand point. Every spiritual gift, including the one or the ones that you have, is important. They are all needed. All of the gifts are needed. And to the degree that a gift is not present in a church is to the degree that that particular church is paralyzed or handicapped. No gift is too small. No person is insignificant. One gift is not more important than anyone else. They just have different functions. And every gift is needed. So the gift comes from God and then comes from you to someone else. Or through someone else to you, however you want to say that. The gift is always for others. When you serve God's people today, you are making sure that the grace of Jesus Christ is represented in their life. So as I close, I think it's important for us to again think of this. Let's not spend our time. Let's invest our time. Let's make time count. Let's find ways to bless the people around us. Let's make ways to show and demonstrate the grace of Jesus Christ by using our gift. The best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest your time in doing the will of God. The best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest your time doing the will of God. And today is that time. I invite you, if you're able, to kneel for prayer.